0: Okay, Acts chapter 2 is where I want us to be. I'm not giving you two talks, I'm giving you one talk divided by 24 hours. The explanation of what was taking place, Peter gives from verse 14 following. The event is described, it's, it's, the explanation is not drunk, That's not the explanation. The explanation is, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. There's an old book by Freddie Bruce called This Is That, which is one of those weird titles uh, that his generation used, which is actually from this verse, verse 14. This is that which the prophet uh, Joel has spoken. Uh, It's like that uh, other great book, uh, In Understanding Be Men, uh, which is actually a quote from 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 20. Uh, in sin, be infants, but in understanding, be mature, is how it's now translated. Um, but you think, why is someone writing in understanding be men? Well, why would someone write a book called This Is That? You know, but it's where it comes from. You want to understand, it's what Joel has said. This is the interpretation, and here is the prophetic activity of Christians. It's to speak the word of God, understanding the Old Testament. Because you remember the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he opened their minds to understand the law, the prophets, the writings, how they had spoken about him, about his suffering and his resurrection and the proclamation of the gospel to the world. That is the message of Christianity. And so you want to understand what's happening, go to your Bible and you'll see. And the bit of the Bible you're going to go to is the book of Joel. So come with me to Joel. Having found Acts, let's see if we can find Joel. Uh, there's a heading in verse 1. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We don't know who Joel was. We don't know who Pethuel was. We don't know when Joel lived. Uh, You can have a late date, you can have an early date, you can have a PhD. (laughs) But Joel is writing, and in his writing, chapter 1, verse 2, through to chapter 2, verse 17, is a summons to prayer. A summons to prayer for a very good reason, that is, they are facing the judgment of God. The judgment's coming in the form of He puts it as locusts, whether the locusts are just emblematic of warfare, of armies, or whether these were the locusts. If you live in an agricultural country, locusts are are disasters, absolute disasters. (laughs) Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children, their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth." For a nation has come up against my land, a powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord, the priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed, the grounds mourn, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranates, palm and apple, and all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness is dresses up sorry and gladness dress up from the children dries up dress up dries up from the children of men. They've got to awake verse six. They've got to lament verse eight. They've got to be ashamed verse eleven because of this national disaster of God's judgment epitomized in the coming of the locusts. And so we read in verses 13 to 20 of this national disaster of judgment. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord and your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas! for the day for the day of the lord is near and as destruction from the almighty it comes is not the food cut off before our eyes joy and gladness from the house of our god the seed shrivels under the clods and the storehouses are desolate the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up how the beasts groan the herds of the cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them even the flocks of sheep suffer to you o lord i call For fire has destroyed the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. See, here is the awesome day of God. Uh, Whenever I come over to Britain, it's all so green and lush and, and that kind of thing. But those of us who lived in Australia... We know what droughts are. We know you, you, we've know we got one in the New South Wales at the moment where the animals are just dying, kangaroos are dying beside the road, scratching for water. I mean, it is just appalling, the present circumstance. The, the earth looks like what you've got here on the ground, so it's just brown and there is nothing that grows. And a locust plague coming through New South Wales. You understand, this is just horrendous. And you can't stop them. How can you stop a million, millions of these flying beasts? There's nothing you can do. You just stand and watch your whole countryside destroyed. There is the image that it's it's a horrendous image to grasp hold of. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, and with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale like Warriors they charge, like soldiers, they scale the wall, they march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another, jostle one another. Each marches in his path, they burst through the weapons, and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly uh, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, and who can endure it? The green paint on the buildings gets eaten by the locusts when they come. They destroy everything that is inside. Things that you wouldn't have thought of could be destroyed. And yes, the whole sky just turns black with them. The sun is blotted out by them. A locust plague is one of the worst of all catastrophes that can come upon any community. And this is the day of the Lord. This is the army of the Lord. This is the destruction that comes. And so the great call is to repent. In the face of the condemnation and judgment of the lamb in the land, what else can we do? Verse 12 is such a turning point here. Yet even now, declares the Lord... Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make your heri- make not your heritage or reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say... Among the peoples, where is their God? Which is one of the arguments Moses uses, if you remember, uh, in the Exodus, after the golden calf, you know, the nations. And it's a point that Ezekiel makes in the Babylonian captivity. God, when he comes, is coming to restore his nation, not for the nation's sake, but for the holiness of his own name. That's why we pray, hallowed be your name. Uh, it's because we want God's name hallowed. And his name is held in disrepute when his people are under the judgment the judgment here. You can't understand what Peter's talking about on the day of Pentecost if you haven't read Joel. It's no good just to look up the verses. You've got to look up the book. The New Testament doesn't give you very often verse numbers and chapter numbers from the Old Testament mainly because the verse numbers and chapter numbers were added several centuries after the New Testament. Uh, It does refer to the second psalm, Uh, but that's about the only time it gives you a number, which is not hard to get that number right. right. And so when it quotes part of the New Testament, it's, it's the part that you're supposed to read the chapters around about. And what you'll find is they knew their Bibles. It's extraordinary, I know. But they actually take a passage of the Scriptures in context and it has much richer meaning than just the particular words they quote. So, of course, they'll pinpoint the bit, the, the, the bit of the iceberg that's above the water. But to understand the bit of the iceberg above the water, you've got to, you've got to check the whole iceberg out to see what it's about. And so, here is the answer to prayer. The answer that comes in verses 18 following. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northern afar from you and drive him into a parched land, desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, and the early and the latter rains as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with, with, with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that were swarming locusts of eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. What great news. Salvation for the land that we have here. What marvellous news for those who are facing the horror of the destruction of the locusts, the restoration of the locust years. But the salvation really comes from God being in their midst. The God who is described there so beautifully in verses 13 of chapter 2 the gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast God. That God that we know, our God, that God, He is going to bring the salvation. And then comes our text, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward, which Peter, remember, changes to in the last days. And it will come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit the locusts will cover the sky. You won't have the sun. The whole place will be in chaos. But God is going to save his land and his people through all that chaos. But the salvation that comes after is going to be better than the land was before. For now, not only will the Lord be in the midst, but his spirit will be in the hearts of all his people. You remember how Moses appointed the 70 elders and how they, the Spirit came upon them and they prophesied and one of them was not there and Joshua came and said to them, they're prophesying and, Moses said, and Joshua said, you, you've got to stop them. And, and Moses' response was, oh, that all God's people were prophets. And that's what Ezekiel 36 is saying is going to happen. The Spirit is going to come upon all God's people. The Old Covenant people of God were a nation by inheritance. The New Testament people of God are a nation by spiritual regeneration. There's a big difference. Not all Israel were God's people. The nation as a whole was God's people, but within the nation, many, many were not God's people. There was a remnant of the faithful within God's people. But in the New Covenant... You have to be born again by the Spirit of God. And if you're born again by the Spirit of God, you shall prophesy. For the Spirit comes into people and gives them the word to speak to the world. And what is the word to speak to the world? By Revelation tells us, the the Spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. What other message would the Spirit of God give us than the, the testimony of Jesus? And so the new age that's coming after the great judgment that is going to fall is going to be a new age of spiritual renewal for all God's people. The big change is going to happen. The new Israel is coming. The new Israel of spiritual rebirth, of regeneration, is coming. That's what Peter is pointing to. But notice even something more happens in chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We don't know the valley, but the the Jehoshaphat means uh, place of decision, the Lord's decision. And I will enter into judgment with them there, On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them. And I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the land of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, Consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come. Beat your plowshares into swords. Everyone loves the other verse where you beat the swords into plowshares, but this one's here. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are dark and the stars withdraw their, their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake for the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. My holy mountain to Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and the water of the valley of Shittim. Egypt has become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. The blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Peter sees the Spirit of God come upon the disciples of Jesus, and they proclaim to the exiles of Israel, who are gathered in Jerusalem from all these different nations, That the day of salvation has come. The day of judgment for the world has come. For the end of the world has arrived in the resurrection of Jesus. Do you see why all these, back in chapter 2 of Acts, all these nations are listed here? Because the promise of Joel was that the conquest of the people of Israel that had taken all the Israelites in the dispersion out. There were more Jews living in Alexandria than there were in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. The Jews were scattered all over the Mediterranean world, all in dispersion, all under judgment, all under the Roman thumb. But now, with this resurrection, the spirit comes of prophecy who is going to declare the victory of God and the end of the world. The judgment upon the nations has now started and the great work of God is told to the exiles when they've come to Jerusalem that salvation has come. That's what Peter says Acts 2 is about. It's about Joel. But if you don't read Joel, you don't know what it's about really and you concentrate on the wrong things. But he goes on to explain it. I'm going to move quicker. Sorry, I'm going to go slowly. Men of Israel, I'm in Acts 10.2. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man tested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst in your, uh, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing his pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make the fullness of gladness with your presence. Now, at this point, what should you do? Read Psalm 16. Because the extract from Psalm sixteen is part of the argument of Psalm sixteen, we want to have lunch sometime today, so I won't do it for you. But you tickies, you can see why he fell out of the bed, out of the window late at night as the apostle expounded the scriptures properly, <laughs> because each part requires you to read what is being said. It's a psalm of praying for safety. David is sure of a beautiful inheritance that is his and he has great confidence in the Lord that he will not see corruption. Problem. David was corrupt. He saw corruption. We know where his grave is, says Peter. You go down the road, fourth grave on the right, there's King David. Open him up, check him out, he'll be as corrupt as a body is there. But he says, I will not see corruption. Brothers, verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Remember one Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12? The prophets of old spoke by the Spirit of Christ about things they did not understand. David is saying, "I'm sure I will not see corruption, I the Christ, not understanding that he was not the Christ. He was the father of the Christ, that what he was actually talking about was the true Christ. And David's words were not true. He is his grave. Look, check him out, he's corrupted, he's gone. What David was doing was talking about what David didn't know he was talking about, namely the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the key argument that he is the son of David that David was speaking about in Psalm 16. Paul uses the same argument in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, when he's speaking in uh, Pisidian Antioch, I think it is in 13, but you'll see his argument is exactly the same, same psalm. This is a key argument of first century apologetics to Jewish evangelism, right? Was the fact of David's prophecy not coming true. But actually, it does come true in a way that David didn't know, which is what Peter's talking about later in his epistle. This Jesus. God raised up, verse 32, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out that this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The idea that he's been exalted to the right hand of God, that also is an Old Testament allusion. It's an Old Testament allusion to which psalm? 110, which is not surprising because he's about to come to it. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Jesus uses Psalm 110 in Mark 12 and parallels in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, not in John if I remember correctly, but he uses that argument when he says, who is David's Lord? The Lord, Yahweh, capitals, upper class, uppercase, says to my Lord. Well, who's David's Lord? David is the greatest king in the land. David didn't have any Lord other than the Lord. So who is the Lord that David is speaking about? This was the conundrum that Jesus put to his contemporaries that silenced them. That you, If you read Mark 12, that's the last discussion they had when they're, the whole series, the Pharisees argue with him, the, the, the Sadducees argue with him, they're all arguing with him. He then puts his argument and silences them all because how could David's son be David's Lord? But, of course, that is the point that is now being used here, this great psalm. But it's also used in Hebrews when it wants to talk about He's greater than the angels. To which angel was there? did God ever say, you sit at my right hand? And Hebrews uses it the other way too because Psalm 110 is the psalm that refers to Melchizedek. So the whole Melchizedek argument, which is in the centre of the epistle of Hebrews, chapter 7 and 8, so the whole Melchizedek comes out of Psalm 110. You, you really need to study Psalm 110 if you're going to understand what the New Testament understands about what is taking place. And a key part of the Melchizedek bit was every priest stands every day offering up the same sacrifice. But this priest, having offered up the one sacrifice for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. A new world order has come about. A new world order that has this person as the risen Christ, king, and as the priest who has done the job has finished the task. It all comes out of Psalm 110. And that's why it is so often referred to, and here is referred to. And so he draws his conclusion for his sermon. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. There's great assurance is being said in this. the, The Greek word certain is the first word in the sentence, if I remember correctly. That God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now in the 3rd, 4th century, as those of us who have parents who teach us early church history would know, the whole ontology of uh, Jesus, the Son of God, was up for grabs. And one of the alternatives that people fought forward was adoptionism. And this verse becomes a key verse on adoptionistic arguments, that Jesus is not the Lord and Christ until God makes him the Lord and Christ. And so we have ironed out the eschatological impact of Jesus' resurrection and outpouring of the Spirit, because the text actually says he was made Lord and Christ by his death and resurrection that he wasn't the Lord and Christ until he rose from the dead and poured out the Spirit, having sat at the right hand of his Father and High. It has nothing to do with ontology. Therefore, it has nothing to do with adoptionism. Right? You have this debate and then you go looking for text to prove your point. Well, that's a hopeless way to read the Bible. Right? You will find what you want to find right? and you'll argue with each other. When you see Bible believers arguing over something and you know they're both Bible believers and they're arguing it over and they never seem to resolve the argument, it's because the argument was completely false and phony in the first place. Um, Infant adult baptism is a classic. Why are we arguing over infant adult baptism? Because the Bible doesn't talk about it. You say, oh, what about this verse? What about that verse? None of them are talking about it. They're not even considering what to do with second generation Christians. Second generation Christians don't appear in the New Testament. So you make up what you want to make up. Make up dedication ceremonies. They don't exist in the Bible. Make up confirmation services. They don't exist in the Bible. Uh, You're making it up and then finding Bible verses like bishops, priests and deacons. They're not in the Bible. They shouldn't be in the church, but they are. We fight over the things the Bible doesn't say, because, but we make the Bible say what we want it to say. Well, here's a classic of it. You see, what the Bible is saying is really, really important, and it's not a, it's not an ontological discussion. It's an eschatological thing. Now the world is different. Now the kingdom has come to His King, the King has come to His kingdom rather. Now the priest has offered up the sacrifice and forgiveness of sins can start. Now it's all the new world that has happened, you see. This is the the end of the world. Judgment has now come. Forgiveness is now given. Forgiveness before was always anticipatory of this moment, but this moment is now arrived. Whosoever sins you bind will be bound. Whosoever sins you forgive will be forgiven. Because the new age has arrived. The last age has arrived. This is the most critical, important part of the passage. This is the the climax of the sermon that is so often undersold for us because we do not see that it's really about the end of the world that has taken place. That That is what we need to be proclaiming to our nation. They go on living as if there is no end to the world, they go on living as if they go on living before the end of the world. But we who live after the end of the world, that is after the resurrection, we actually know the world has come to an end now. It's the, the end has started. The judgment has commenced. And your rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is your condemnation. And your acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ is your salvation. That is the judgment of Jehoshaphat. That is the judgment in the valley of judgment. It's The decision is now made. And so... It's not, what are you going to say to God when you arrive on the last day? (laughs) That's an irrelevance. You don't have to say anything then. The judgment seat we seek before Christ on the last day is the judgment seat of rewards that we get for our Christian life, but it's not a question of our salvation. Our salvation is assured now. That's why evangelicals have always had as a hallmark of genuine evangelicalism assurance of salvation because we've already passed from death to life. The life is now. Eternal life is now. Eternal life doesn't start when I die. Eternal life is what I have already in the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is already now. And the outpouring of the Spirit into our hearts, regenerating us, bringing us this baptism, takes us out of this world into the next. And Jesus because he has risen from the dead, now sits at the right hand of God, having made purification for sin and pouring out the spirit of God onto his people who now will speak his words, his great word, his message of salvation. Turn with me to the next book of the Bible, Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here it is. Here's the gospel of God. Notice the key thing about it, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, I deliver to you first of all that Christ died for his sins according to the Scriptures, and that he rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. You cannot understand the Scripture. You cannot understand the death and resurrection of Jesus except according to the Scriptures. You never interpret the Bible, my friends. You never interpret the Bible. The Bible is the interpretation. So you don't have to interpret the Bible. You've got to read it, you've got to comprehend it. But there's no point interpreting it. So all those books you've got on how to interpret the Bible, ditch them. Waste of money, waste of your brain. You don't need to. See, the fact is Christ Jesus died. That's the fact. For your sins, that's the interpretation. According to the Scriptures, that's where you get the interpretation from. The Scriptures give you the interpretation of the facts. To interpret the interpretation is really just to lead down to solipsism of total ignorance, Right? Because how will you interpret the interpretation of the interpretation? And when you preach it, they'll interpret your interpretation of the interpretation. And in the end, we know nothing. That is because once you pull the plug on God, you pull the plug on the word of God. Because without God creating man in his image, all religious knowledge, all religious language is stupid. And therefore, in due time, all language is stupid. And it's called postmodernity. It took 200 years for the Enlightenment bathwater to run out completely, but it has. So, epistemology classes these days are all about how you don't know anything, such as epistemology. <laughs> it's totally self defeating, isn't it? But that's where it's gone, and I'm sorry, evangelicals have been sucked into writing books on interpretation. Forget it. It's like hermeneutics, waste of space. No one in 1950 wrote books on hermeneutics. It's a modern discovery of post-modernity. He didn't need it in 1950. Any invention of thinking of that character which occurs in the last 50 years has got to be suspect. Herman who? (laughs) The gospel of God has been promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And what's it about? It's concerning his son, God's son. That's what it's about. Who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. Is that the gospel you're preaching? Many of us are not preaching quite that gospel, not we're preaching anything contradictory to that gospel or contrary to that gospel, but that's not the heart of our message. But it was the heart of the New Testament message. The heart of the New Testament message was Jesus is Christ and Lord and his lordship comes about by his death and resurrection. And by his death and resurrection, he proves himself to be son of God in power, son of David which is what the Old Testament said would be the son of God when he comes. And so eschatology is right at the heart of the gospel message of the word of God. That is God's word to us today. We don't live B.C., we live A.D. And that understanding that came from our forefathers in dating everything as before Christ but never after Christ... (laughs) is fundamental to a Christian worldview and a gospel understanding. And the non-Christians understand it better than we do because the non-Christians keep on changing it into before common era and common era. They know that AD, as an expression of time, is profoundly Christian, <laughs> deeply Christian, you see, the year I live in, 2018, is a number of rotations of the planet. It's in irrelevance. A.D. is everything. So when you're asked the date, always write A.D. in big letters and then 2018 or 2019 or whatever, because that really is, you know, I was born in 1945. No, I was born A.D. And I entered into A.D. when I was 14 because they all then intellectually, personally, as a a boy, I was before Christ. But once I acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord, I moved from BC to AD. I I accepted the, the new reign, the kingdom has come, which is Jesus' message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, of course... Jesus wouldn't rise from the dead if he hadn't propitiated for the sins of the world. <laughs> that also is brought out in the coming chapters in Romans, isn't it? Right. Um, although our translations can't believe it, uh, at the end of chapter four it says there uh, he was delivered up because of our trespasses, and he was raised because of our justification. D you' in the two two both times because of. <laughs> that is. Because he had paid fully for our sins and turned aside the wrath of God completely, therefore he was raised from the dead. For if he hadn't been raised from the dead, we would still be in our sins. He would still be paying for the sins of the world. But he paid fully for the sins of the world in his death. And therefore, because we are justified, because his death is effective, therefore, He was raised up from the dead. And so, yes, we preached Christ. We preached penal substitutionary atonement because that's the foundation basis upon which God raised him from the dead and poured out the spirit upon all flesh so that we now speak the word of God. And that's why I said not only is the hallmark of being an evangelical that you have assurance of salvation, but also the hallmark of an evangelical is that you will always (laughs) evangelise. Because you have the spirit of prophecy within you to declare the testimony of Jesus.